Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. We dealt with some pretty heavy stuff last week, talking about Ravi Zacharias and uh, his many forms of abuse, especially through the lens of spiritual and religious abuse. But there is a connection to today's episode as well. Uh, We didn't focus on Ravi's work as an apologist, and not all apologists are guilty of what I would call peddling certainty, but a lot of consumers of apologetics can, can consume that content so that they can bolster their own sense of certainty. And that's, I think, the connection. Now, the conversation I had today with Pete was recorded before um, the Ravi episode and before all that news came out. We don't talk about him. But if you wanted to connect the two episodes, I think that's how you would do it. Uh, I've been following Pete Enns' work and writing for a long time. He's been very helpful in my life. He's, of course, one of the hosts of the Bible for Normal People podcast and the author of many books. And he's done really great work around this idea of certainty and its role in so many Christian communities. So I don't think there's really a whole lot I got to say. You guys mostly probably know who he is and are just looking forward to hearing uh, me chat with him, I hope. And I think it was great. So enjoy it. Pete, thank you so much for joining me today. Man, I've, I've recognized something about myself as I've done, I don't know, close to 200 podcast episodes now in my life. And that is that I really prefer to think of myself as a peer with the person I'm talking to. I might even choose guests sometimes based partially on that. Of course, there's other reasons to interview people who are not famous in, in that they they can sometimes be a little more free to talk about the stuff that they're 
interested or expert in. They don't have as many talking points from their publisher, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I, I can't pretend that we are peers today, even though maybe in some podcasting sense we are peer-like, but we're not peers. Your work was huge for me starting around seven years ago. I associate your work in your first few books with the idea of not doing mental gymnastics around hmm. the Bible. Does that resonate with you? Am I, does that feel right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's what I'm trying to do because I don't want to do that myself. When did you realize in your own scholarship, you know, your own research that mental gymnastics is in fact what so many more traditional and more conservative scholars, theologians are doing? I guess I think I probably realized that at least in my own mind in stages, like um, even before I went to seminary, I think in my early 20s, I think I was just getting a sense that I I was getting more satisfying, quote, honest answers from different areas than from maybe the church that I was going to at the time. And I think that's sort of just kept morphing along and certainly in graduate school after seminary that definitely, yeah, that was definitely a part of my experience where, and I didn't feel like I was being like lied to by anybody. I just think that the, 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 the parameters that people have the, uh, for their own thinking in, in evangelical circles for me, just, it stopped making, it stopped having a lot of explanatory power. And I said, there's got to be another way of doing it without playing these mental gymnastics of making things fit. Yeah, that's awesome. I I love that you brought up not being lied to. I think that a lot of times – I think I I tend to see this in people who have left the church and the way that they think about – of course, not all. But the way that some of these folks talk and think about the faith or the church from the other side is that all these people are like delusional or deluded. They often – are like really bad actors and they are, you know, there's a lot of power analyses that get sort of put on it. And I think that oftentimes what's going on is not nearly that sinister. It's like people are trying, they're doing their best. Mm -hmm. They are using the tools they have and they're coming up with what they come up with. And that is so different than sort of willful deception uh, of any kind. And it and it makes sense within a system. You know, we all have parameters for thinking, and and you know, I'm no different than anybody else in that respect. I, I have boundaries and all that sort of stuff. But within certain boundaries, things make a lot of sense. And and the people who taught me, you know, in seminary, for example, were good people. You know, there wasn't a malicious bone in their body, and and I could see the force of some of the arguments given certain assumptions. But it's when you start hanging around with people who don't have those same assumptions and they, they build an edifice from a different kind of foundation, you can sort of see, well, actually, that foundation is so much more solid. I don't have to keep patching it. <laughs> it's just sort of there and it looks like it's going to last for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about certainty here and you wrote a book about certainty. It's called The Sin of Certainty. But I want to ask how you came to that because – You are an Old Testament scholar by training. Your first three or four books, by my count, are mostly about the Old Testament. Evolution of Adam brings in, of course, uh, New Testament stuff with Paul. None of those are about epistemology, how we know what we know, how confident, you know what I mean? So I think it's probably interesting to know how you saw, no, actually the next book needs to be about this search for certainty in Christian circles. How did that happen? Well, I think, you know, the, the the little thing I keep hidden from people, but I shall reveal it here, is that all my books have like a journalistic dimension to them. It's almost like all my books are memoirs. I, people just, I just don't call them that and they don't look like it because there's always like an academic kind of didactic uh, twist to them. And I think that book just reflected uh, my own journey of faith uh, that had been developing for, you know, many years at that point where I just felt like I had been so helped by other people who have thought about that very deeply. And I wanted to put my own twist on it, how I saw it. And to 
to dig into the Bible, which is what I do, you know, and I wanted to bring a lot of Bible into it saying, listen, the Bible is on your side if you're not certain about things. Right. And that's okay. So that, that alone, that's not a solution. That's just sort of a way of continuing on with life. Was there a moment autobiographically or a passage or an argument you read from another thinker that kind of tipped the balance and made you go, okay, you know what? It is certainty is the best word for the issue, the, the rub here, where the rubber is meeting the road, the issue here. I, I, you know, I don't think so, Dan. I think it's just accumulation of subtle experience that all of a sudden one day I sort of saw something that I said, yeah, I really want to talk about this. It probably, I think one thing that probably might have given me some clarity to this was starting around, I think it was 2009, it might have been 2008, I started working on a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was in the midst of going through a lot of stuff, and I just started seeing things. And lo and behold, other people saw them too, but other people didn't see it. So I just sort of got into this conversation where it's that book that really helped me begin seeing in, in, like an, in an existential way, a meaningful way, that whole part of at least the Hebrew Bible that calls into question simple answers to life, like the book of Job or Lament Psalms, and certainly the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that was probably a crystallizing period for me. It wasn't the thing that did it. It might have been the thing that sort of made it more concrete for me. Can you give us an example from Ecclesiastes of, of, of what you're talking about? Sure. Well, I mean, just the whole book. <laughs> the guy's having a bad day, you know, and, and he blames God for it. I mean, this is really true. He blames God for the nature of existence. And, you know, in the introduction of the book, he begins by saying that everything is, is uh, you know, vanity of vanity, as it says, or utterly meaningless, or I like the word, it's absurd. Just life is absurd. And he looks at nature and says, listen, the sun goes up and goes down. And then next day, it just starts it all over again. It's futile. It doesn't have anything to show for its efforts. It keeps doing the same thing. And, you know, by the way, he says, you know, we don't remember people who have died long before us. And one day we won't be remembered by people who come after us. I'm like, this guy's not having a good day at all. And then he sort of just talks like that. But then he basically says, God sets up the world this way. So he has a real problem with God. And the book just sort of takes off from that. That's just the first chapter. So I think it's pretty much everything in the book. And then, you know, the not to go on and on about Ecclesiastes, but the end of the book, I think, is a very profound sort of way of tying this whole, whole issue together, where the narrator acknowledges the wisdom of uh, this main character of Ecclesiastes, who's called Kohelet, that they, he acknowledges the insight and wisdom that he has. But then he says, you know, let's let's not keep in that space, let's acknowledge it's true that life can really be absurd. But now what do we do? Well, we don't try to figure it out and make sense of it all. He says, fear God, keep the commands, which means that's that's an Israelite way of talking, like continue being faithful anyway. Yeah. Keep up and that the life to me of was faith. like, yeah. it's not about like figuring it out and making it certain. It really is a life of faith, which sometimes is paradoxical and even absurd. And I think becoming, seeing that in the Bible and having that reflected in my own life for a whole host of reasons, it just, it just, it sort of crystallized together and saying, why didn't anybody teach me this in church? (laughs) Right. Well, so I want to try and draw a line here or, or, you know, it's a long distance to, to travel, but let's take it as a given that the Bible and a large part of the Christian tradition does contain this kind of. Like, what's the opposite of certainty? Uh, Probabilistic thinking, uh, commitment, (laughs) faith, like a leaping leap of faith. I mean, Kierkegaard is like is about as anti-certainty as it gets. So that's all in the tradition. And yet I was raised, you were raised uh, in a tradition that at least at times really, really wanted to say to us, no, you can be certain Right. You can be certain that you are God's chosen. Some of this is is very pastoral. It's very much like it's it sounds to me kind of like the way I talk to my son. Like God loves you. Jesus loves you. You mm. know, he's only nine months old, so he doesn't know what I'm saying yet. <laughs> but, you know, there's a difference between assurance and certainty. And I guess mm. my question is, why did our parents or why do religious leaders in these 
culturally dominant pockets of Christianity, what are they hoping for us? Let's 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 assume the best. What mm-hmm. are they hoping for us when they promoted certainty? Well, I mean, I think for one thing, they promoted certainty because that's just what you do. It wasn't a decision. This is mm-hmm. just the Christian culture. But I think what is the end uh, result of that is if you're certain, you can live your life with less anxiety if you know. Yeah. And I think who doesn't want to live their life with less anxiety? Of course, for me, my anxiety increased by realizing I can't figure it all out and I simply can't be certain about these things. And actually at ease, it helped the anxiety by not having that kind of certainty and not feeling like you have to have it, right? See, it isn't just people being taught you can be certain. They're, they're taught you have to be. Mm. If you're not certain about this, you're not trusting God, you're not trusting the Bible, and you're not really being faithful at that point. And that's, uh, that's very much a tone. I don't, I don't know. Not everybody teaches that. Not every church teaches that. Every denomination teaches that. But certainly in, let's say, conservative Protestantism, that cut its eye teeth in response to the Enlightenment and then the rise of modernism and the impact of things like science of the 19th century and thereabouts. I mean, this, we, we're sitting at the end product, so to speak, of a long history of the intellectualizing of the Christian faith. Not that it doesn't have an intellectual component, but like making it be essentially a matter of look at this reasonably. It makes sense. It's, these are perfect arguments and you have certainty if you just adhere to them. And if you doubt them, if you don't think they're certain, then you have a faith problem. You have a sin problem. Yeah. It's like apologetics has been given a task bigger than it can handle. Like I, I tend to think that there is a place for reasonable apologetics. Like it would be bad if we were walking around believing things that could easily be disproven. That mm-hmm. would be like a bad state of affairs. I don't want to believe things that are sort of like pretty quickly disproven if you think about them. You know, I think of Francis Spufford's book, Unbelievable, where he, you know, he's like, it's like an emotional apologetic. Like Christianity makes emotional sense. There's at least that. Or thinking about the multiverse and does that really solve the problem of uh, the fine tuning of the universe? And like, it's reasonable to think that the universe is fine tuned. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that. But when apologetics has a much harder task, which is basically to like relieve everyone's individual anxiety about maybe being wrong in their life and sort of like pumping up the amplitude on that certainty, that seems like really unsustainable and leading up to an inevitable fall for people who ever see another perspective clearly. Right. And that's the whole issue with the intellectualizing of the faith. It's within a particular system where things have to make sense. And if you leave that, what else do you have? You have subjectivity. You don't have objectivity. Well, yeah, philosophers can go back and forth on that one a lot. And the fact of the matter is there isn't a whole lot of objectivity in what we do or think anyway. You know, we, we are subjective creatures. And what we all call objectivity is really just arguments that we have to help us make sense of our subjective experience. You know, we're left and right brain kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, we're not driven by our reason. We've sort of known since Freud that we're driven by things that we're not even aware of. And reason comes along for the ride. You know, and I'm aware of that. So it's it's a great relief not to feel you have to be certain in a way that everyone would be convinced. And, you know, something that really, I mean, that really hit me with this, Dan, was just other experiences in graduate school around people who came from different parts of the world who had no framework whatsoever for understanding anything that I was talking about. They didn't. And I couldn't expect them to. And that got me thinking about what is God like? You know, is it really a matter of checking off some boxes and you've got the right set of beliefs and then you're fine and and you pass the test and God's happy with you? Or is God bigger and more out of control than we tend to think God is? So, I mean, that that was helpful. It was scary. But at the end of the day, it was extremely liberating to just be able to let go of having to wrap my arms around God and say, "I, I get this thing. That reminds me of my own experience around like late high school and college and and maybe early 20s when I would be in a Barnes and Noble. So this is aging me. I'm 37. (laughs) Barnes and Nobles were thriving at this point in my life. And I knew 
as uh, an evangelical, which books in the Christianity section were sound, were biblically and theologically sound. And then I knew about these other books by Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg. And if, if your books had been out yet by Pete Enns, but this was before that. That are false um, teaching. These and, are false and teaching. Error. And yeah. I remember thinking all the time, but how sad it is that someone just a seeker who goes, I'm interested in Christianity, and they go into the section. How would they possibly know which ones of these are the right ones and which ones are the false teachers? And really being bothered by that for like a decade. Uh, well, that's why it, God put you on earth, Dan, to, to make sure that people don't do that. I mean, there's obviously like there is a role. You know, it's funny because now I basically have a show where I promote the opposite books. Um, and so <laughs> in some sense, you're right. Like I, you're joking, but it is true that that I do do that. And you do, too, by by the guests you choose to have on your show. Right. So there is a sense in which, yeah, it's all these forces. But I have so much less anxiety now about the the person being led astray or whatever, because at that time, hell was in the balance. And now for me, hell is not in the balance. Like, well, some people are just going to read some shitty Christian books and they're going to just be in that world, maybe forever, maybe for a short time. And God will continue to pursue them. You know, like I just the, the pressure is kind of off in that sense. I don't know that it just reminded me of that story. Yeah. There is something I want to I want to move a little bit to the to the phenomenological, the personal subjective experience of coming away from certainty, of disconnecting from it a bit. I have this phrase that I've been kicking around. Maybe it'll be a book title or something or a, a series coming down from eternity. And by that phrase, I mean, like there's a certain way one can be raised Christian where one is told over and over again until you believe it that. You've got the real keys of the kingdom here. You are dealing with the absolute straight dope from God. You are plugged in with the angels and the new Jerusalem. And you start reading more and thinking more and you have a gay friend and then you have a Muslim friend and you see some television program uh, and you read, you know, whatever. And yep. you have a friend die at 15. You know what? All these things happen. So the, the phrase coming down from eternity is, is sort of laser focused on the personal experience, the very real cost of those certainties, those infinite certainties becoming – losing those and mm -hmm. then having to deal with a messier world. Right. Does that resonate with you? And, and where, do you, where do you see certainty sort of playing into that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's not just dealing with a messier world but dealing with a messy God. And that's the hard part. It's not the world. It, and in fact, the world can be as messy as it wants to be. But if you've got God right, you know you have the right answer despite it all. Oh, but yeah. when – and this always starts, in my experience, it always starts with your view of the Bible. You know, once you equate, you know, God has written this and it makes perfect sense. And if it doesn't, you've got sin in your life. And there you have it. So you almost equate the Bible with what God is actually – it almost exhausts God. And once you start seeing some of those points of friction in the Bible itself, then it, that affects how you think about God. And, and then when you have other experiences like, you know, a gay friend or a relative comes out or, or um, you know, somebody dies, a horrible thing happened, or you just, like me, meet really nice Jews, you know, who were like from Israel and, and who were teaching me Bible more than I ever knew in my whole life. And, you know, those kinds of experiences all come together to just make you stop and say, maybe I, maybe I don't really know how the world works. I or can't find God, my car keys works. half the time, you know? So, I mean, what the heck am I going to pontificate about the world for? And, and maybe all this Christianity, this journey is not about, well, now I know I have the right answer exhaustively, but maybe it is putting us on a, on a journey of curiosity, of openness and always thinking of God out ahead of us instead of sort of behind us. We have to go back and make sure everything's in order before we can move on a couple of steps. Maybe God's like light years ahead, so to speak, even literally light years ahead. And we're just trying to be human and do the best we can. And what if God's okay with that? You know, what, like you said, taking hell off the table makes a big difference in how we process this stuff. So it's funny that you mentioned actually the text because the way I framed it was the way that I often hear of in other people, a gay friend, 
a big loss. But that actually wasn't my story. My story was it happened starting with the text itself. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've – I think probably when we interviewed you on Reconstruct about three or four years ago, this came out that like for me it was the Canaanite genocide. That was the one that really stuck in my head as like, oh, I think I need – I need to know what the options are here. And that started unraveling things for me. And then it was also, it was theology and philosophy thinking about homosexuality before I had, I mean, I'm sure I had gay friends, certainly like younger in evangelical high school that I didn't know were gay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like, I was still pretty sheltered. I was in a band with all Christian guys. I knew some gay people, but it was actually just thinking about how could this be sinful? How could Mm -hmm. it be in any way sort of selfish like every other sin seems to be? That was what did it for me. It was actually not the real world experience, but I realized that I am, I think I am the outlier. Uh, but maybe you're kind of more like me in, in often this stuff comes from wrestling with the stuff itself at a kind of mm-hmm. an intellectual level. Uh, yeah. You know, was that more what it is for you? Yeah. I mean, I've always sort of been that way and it's, you know, and I think for a lot of people, it's actually that way too, but it's starting to wrestle with the text itself and then asking a bunch of questions and then you know, how that matches with your experience, you know. So I am, you know, I'm a very textually oriented person in that respect. That's why I do what I do. You know, I can't help it. Occupational hazard. But, um, I mean, the Bible gives us plenty of opportunities to rethink our certainties just by watching the biblical authors, one thing, just disagree with each other on things and, and how they're clearly processing things. Watching Paul clearly processing things about what does it mean to be the family of God? How do Gentiles fit in? How does this work? How does this fit with Israel's story? What Bible passage do I quote and talk about to sort of show that there's one continuous thing? And, you know, just watching people in the Bible itself think and experience and think about what God is like in light of those experiences, to me, is is another one of those moments that is just, it's very refreshing how the, see how the Bible creates the problem, so to speak, like Canaanite genocide. The Bible also provides a path for addressing those problems, namely the recognition that people have come to various conclusions in the Bible about what God is like based on their particular experiences. So there's something interesting about the certainty approach, and I think it's interesting that you wrote that book. Was it your fourth book, fifth book? I'm not sure because there's some... I I don't know. I don't really count. But, it was the yeah. third like major one that I was aware of or f- fourth major one that I was aware of. But I had an experience with your work earlier on, and I would bet that many people listening are going to resonate with what I'm about to describe. Okay. I think this is quite common. So you start to deconstruct or whatever you want to call it, and you hear, for instance, an interview with Pete Enns before you have your show on – I don't know. I heard you on any number of other shows. And then it's like I'm sitting there in my car. I have some visual memories of even where I was driving. And I'm like at a stop sign, at a stoplight, trying to find another interview with you because the wheels are spinning so fast. And I think that this is like an early stage of coming out of that certainty where all I can do at this point is replace it with another certainty or at least a really good system. Right. So – One of the early thoughts I remember having about Genesis was like, okay, so I guess that the real record of historical events probably starts after the flood or probably starts with Abraham. Is there is there enough of a chronological gap here before Abraham that it's reasonable to say, okay, from that point on, it's the way that I understood it before? Like these kind of what I now see as provisional steps. Right, but that were necessary on the path. When I think about your early work, like I just think of moments like that Mm -hmm. in the car, kind of freaking out, but recognizing that there was something here that was better than what I'd had before. Did you have moments like that? Is that related to the certainty stuff? Just kind of wide open prompt for you there. Well, I think yeah, it is. I'm sure I'd have to think about my own experiences like yours, but I'm sure they're there because something like it freaks you out, but then you sort of like gather around that moment a little bit and create a little bit of offense. 
but I do hear it regularly from others, you know, when I'm, you know, speaking someplace or whatever, just, you know, a conversation like this where, um, you know, people say, you know, I, I really understand what you're saying here about like the nature of the Bible and it makes a lot of sense to me. But if all what you're saying is true, how can we be sure? And they're caught in that middle part because, okay, you're taking away a sense of certitude for me. I need you to replace it with something else. And I understand that. I mean, I, we all look for like, th- things can't be just absolutely absurd and nonsensical all the time. Like, you know, God's a pink elephant or something. It's just If we had to believe that, we, d- we can't just go on like that. Some things have to just fit somehow. But until the, the notion of mystery is embraced a little bit more, there's really not much further you can go except just continually deconstructing and trying to rebuild little pockets of certainty. And I think one of the keys is letting go of the need to be certain, but then finding things along the way, just as you come up that are affirming. I don't like the word certainty. I like the more, more of the word like, like certitude, a sense of conviction, let's say conviction, a sense of conviction about things, which isn't something that has to be ironclad, intellectually verifiable. I, and not to get off the point, but even the idea of an intellectually verifiable God is for many people an absurd notion. Right. Because God then becomes an object that you can prove or disprove alongside other things. But what if God is the very basis and ground of reality, which is what God sort of means, which means by definition – we can't do the thing we want to do right. <laughs> with, uh, you know, certain kinds of apologetics, either pro or con Christianity, you know, and I have as much of a beef with people who say God doesn't exist because there's no clear logical evidence for it. I, I, th- I think that's really a very, a, a very non-intellectual way, frankly, of talking about God, because it's, it's so, it right away reduces God to something that you would have evidence for as if, Everything around us isn't already evident, so to speak, for the existence of God. You know, I don't say that simply. That's not a cheap proof or anything. I'm right. just saying, like, if God is real, then the notion that I have to have evidence that God exists to me is already an absurd claim. That's interesting. Yeah, I ain't feel it like though? that's it's beyond. I think that might be a little bit beyond my pay grade. So I'm going to pivot us just because. I feel like I'll only say stuff that I haven't thought out. <laughs> I don't want you to fall asleep either. So go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's good. Um, but let, let me pivot here. Have you thought about certainty in relationship to something like Maslow's hierarchy? And let me motivate a little bit what I mean by that. Um, okay. There might be people who are religious, but who are also much lower on the hierarchy than like you or I are. So that what they think about God in terms of their day-to-day living will invariably end up being a lot more about survival, about daily needs. And in, and for someone who is struggling to have enough nutrition, a safe place to live, shelter, enough, you know, food, enough money to get through the month and pay bills, a God of a certain kind of, of character Mm-hmm. Uh, a God with, with of a certain kind of, I don't know, formulaicness sure. can be really comforting. A knowability. It's right, just, exactly. You count on this God to do certain things, yeah. So I guess the question is like, is a lack of certainty, is living in the mystery in some sense a privilege? <laughs> like no, it of, might be. Of people I, th- I think it's up, partly you know? a privilege, but I also think it's something that people of certain personality types are attracted to. Yes, Totally. And that's why I think it's both. And that's why, you know, I don't think it's my job to go around to churches and say, wait a minute, you're being certain about something. Let me blow that out of the water. It's more a model of faith that people who have a need for it can see, oh, look, there's something I had never knew that existed. And that's probably the comment that we get most at um, at the Bible for normal people and with our patrons at, at Patreon is like, it's, I just needed to know I'm not alone. Yep. That I'm not the only one thinking this. And yeah, and our job is not to make the world think like us, because ironically, that would be really substituting another kind of a certainty system for something right. else. Right. And that would be a problem, too. You know? And it would be interesting for you or for I doing the same thing to audit ourselves 
Like, why do we need our shows or our books to be the biggest possible? Are we just, you know, are we like dealing with our own insecurity in a very similar way that a fundamentalist Mm. is dealing with her insecurity as she doubles down on certainty? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't doubt that. (laughs) You know, I think that there's always something about no one comes at this from, let's say, pure and, 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 and motives that can't be questioned. Right. You know, yeah. and I think it is true. And I, and I sort of sense it in myself because when I, when I lose sight of like a bigger picture, I start feeling crappy. And at first I don't really notice it. And then it sort of creeps up on me. And then I feel sort of dead inside. <laughs> I say, look, yeah. I think, I think I'm making this more about myself than about a bigger vision that people can latch on to. Yeah, exactly. That that's, that's kind of an what occupational I was... hazard for for any any people in any sort of position of I hate this term Christian leadership. I just yeah, hate or it. just so, like public thinkers of any kind or whatever kind of thing like that. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah. that's why I mean I try to be very careful that I'm really not trying to say that I have cornered the market. I figured this out. I'm more like I'm really excited about what I have to say here. I think it's very helpful. Let me talk about it incessantly and and see if it sort of trickles down somewhere. And for some people it does, and for some people it doesn't because they just don't. That's not where their life is. They're not interested in that. And that's most people I know, quite frankly. But then for others, you know, they might like really hate it because it clashes against their way of thinking, and that's a whole different kind of conversation at that point. Let me go off track of certainty for one question because I think it's really interesting. Here's a little background. So I – my dissertation research, the sample population that I'm looking at has changed and the sample population is now listeners of progressive, progressive Christian podcasts. I did that for various reasons. Basically, I can't get a representative sample of Americans or whatever. I can get a pretty good sample of that group. And so to do that, I was looking for examples because some people might not know what that is. And so I have a little parenthetical, for instance, you know, you have permission, Bible for normal people, whatever, liturgists, the the broadcast. And in doing that, I went down the top 200 religion uh, and spirituality podcasts on Uh Apple iTunes. And you guys are in there. You guys always tend to be in there somewhere in the 100s Mm -hmm. uh, and a handful are in there. But it's something like one out of 10 Christian podcasts on that are, could be in any way construed as progressive. And that makes me think, thinking down the road, like I, I resonated with what you just said earlier about, we're not trying to blow everything up. We're just like presenting an alternative, get, you know, getting people's voices out there. And then people go, Oh, that exists. I'm not alone. What changes if we're no longer the minority? Or do you think that that would never be the case? So I'm just just projecting out into the future. How do you see that shifting if, for instance, the contingent of progressive Christians becomes a greater and greater share? And it isn't so much about, oh, this exists, and I didn't think it existed. Right. It's more like, okay, now what? What do you do with that? And I think, yeah, that's a, that's another one of these real problems because – you know, if if you think in terms of like, you know, Richard Rohr talks about orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And, you know, orientation is more like the traditional, let's say, Christian evangelical way of doing things. Not that, I don't mean that as negative as it sounds. It's just a way, it's a label. Uh, disorientation is very much what I work in. I, 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 I give a language to the disorientation, the disorienting nature of faith, the disorienting nature of the Bible with a view towards moving towards uh, reorientation. But, you know, I once took stock, talk about a self-audit, you know, um, a few years ago where I realized most of what I say is negative. Hmm. And I actually sort of asked myself a similar question that you're asking me now, like, okay, but what is it that gives hope? What is it that actually makes all this worth doing? Is it just to prove that other people are wrong? And, that really made me think long and hard about what is it, what's the positive thing. You know, the last book I wrote, um, How the Bible Actually Works, is an attempt to sort of do that. Mm. And actually, the sin of certainty is too, because the answer is basically learning to trust without being certain, right? That's right. sort of the bottom line. And how the Bible actually works is that it is messy and very indeterminative and ancient and weird. 
And that's exactly your permission to be on this journey of faith where you don't have to look to the Bible for the final answer. You look to the Bible for modeling the path of wisdom that we all have to follow. So th those are somewhat re reorienting or reconstructive kind of moments. But, but you're right. Like, how do you do church around that? Now, there are plenty of churches that do it, but it would have to be more, much more intentional. Like, what does it mean to be church if you're not sort of defending your system, which is how many people have grown up in the evangelical world? That's easy. We can put our fingers at this is what we do. But what if you take all that? What if that's not even a factor anymore and progressives rule the world? What do you give people? I think that's a really valuable question to be asking ourselves all the time. Let's let's uh, let's follow that. Let's talk less about certainty for the last 20 minutes or so we have here and talk about uncertainty. Talk about trust. Talk about the positive flip side of that coin for me in my own journey. A really pivotal moment came when I began to try out uh, contemplative practices. And I think we've, I think you and I have talked about this at some point. And what that had the effect of doing for me is it made me so viscerally aware of God's love for me that I didn't feel worried about upsetting God through any particular intellectual inquiry I might make. That like, oh, I'm so... Like I've, I'm just being flooded with joy and acceptance seems very unlikely that like reading a Jewish scholar is going to piss God off, you know, like mm -hmm. is going to jeopardize that. It just felt like having it in my body gave me permission, frankly, which is one of the places that the title of the show came from. It's from that experience. I feel like your experience was a little different, but I can't remember now how you've described it. But did you have a... Did you have a kind of a visceral experience that made you feel more comfortable with doing different abstract work? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I had some, not, I wish I had them every day, but I've had well, them like I, two too. in my life. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I have had some experiences where my thought process was just completely bypassed. Hmm which is a hard lesson for Westerners to sort of grasp. And I Especially even, professional scholars, right? Well, but, but you see, even <laughs> an evangelicalism is a highly intellectualized form of, of the Christian faith. I think the arguments are bad, but it is an intellectualized form. That is so, so interesting. It's always funnels through the brain somehow. It's arguments. It's apologetics. Other than and, maybe more like vineyard and more kind of charismatic strains of maybe right. they – but yeah, like no, Baptists, there, there are definitely right? yeah. iterations of evangelicalism sure. that aren't like that. But that's interesting when you think way of, of putting the mainstream it. development of evangelicalism out of fundamentalism in the 20th right. century, it's very much an intellectual thing, which is wonderful. I mean, we're all intellectual, but yeah. it is an intellectual movement. It's Wheaton and Fuller and Moody saying, like, you know what? We're not fundamentalists. We actually have our heads on straight, and mm -hmm. we are really gonna we're gonna do scholarship here. Mm -hmm. But we're also going to be traditional Orthodox Christians or whatever. Right. Yeah. I remember in, um, you know, at Westminster Seminary where I was a student and um, then a faculty member for a while. I remember a visiting fa um, person came to speak in chapel and the person prayed for presence of the spirit among us. And everyone was so awkward with that because that's not an intellectual way of talking. And again, right. I don't mean that's not bad mouthing, uh, you know, Westminster Seminary, but it's, I was a part of that. And I understand it. Yeah. But it was like so weird that you could have an experience of God that bypasses your rational faculties. And in fact, most of much of what people are taught within, again, th these broadly speaking evangelical systems is that you cannot trust your experience. Your experience is bad. It's sinful. Your mind isn't. <laughs> that can figure stuff out. Um, or at least your mind is like the, the maybe the most sanctified part of you or something. I don't know. But well, you know, it, often it, inserted it, there is, and men's minds are better than women's yes, minds. Women's <laughs> minds. Unfortunately. Yeah. And forgive me, white people's minds are sometimes right. better than people of yeah. color's minds. So, I mean, all that kind of stuff comes. Right. Like, again, there's no objectivity here. We're all subjective humans with experiences that affect how we think about anything. And they affect even the deep foundations of how we think about anything that we're not even aware of those foundations. And that's why if this is an intellectual pursuit, the creator of the infinite multiverse, we're in deep trouble. 
because we're never, ever going to get that. The, the most we can do is let our words sort of approximate reality and do the best we can, but realize that hopefully God likes us, <laughs> you know, and isn't like fundamentally dead set against us unless we say the right things. Okay, that reminds me of a, a move that I have increasingly found myself making that I like. I think that this is a good move. And it, it goes something like this. If I think there's a question that I will die not knowing the answer to, then I think it's good to say that. So I was mm-hmm. on this um, atheist's uh, – oh, you – Tom Jump. You, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. did it because you had done it basically. Okay. <laughs> so I did a conversation with him and he would – he's like a classic atheist, basically – disagrees with classic theism and the kind of standard apologetic arguments and thinks that these atheist arguments with all the same assumptions are better, which is fine. But I kept saying things to him, like he would say something like, well, yeah, so then it's, so then it's shown that God could have created a better world than this in this way or whatever. And I would say something like, okay, so the claim God could have made a world like this instead of that or whatever I think is like a thing I'm not going to ever know. I may be right about it, but I'll never know that I know it. And so I'm not like, that's just not going to have a lot of weight in my own system. Whereas something firm foundation for building. No, it's like incredible. It's pixie dust basically. Mm -hmm. And like, just thinking about like, and you can even be empirical about that and say the very smartest philosophers in the world, 200 years had different ideas about that than the very smartest philosophers today have. And so what what about 200 years from now? And right. how how am I going to anticipate what they're going to figure out when they know more about the brain? You know, it's like it's it's nice for me to go. I'm going to die not knowing this. Yeah. So I might think about it if I want to. But mostly I'm going to set that aside because mm-hmm. for, to what end? Right. Well, and this brings in the contemplative approach too, which I am no master of by any means because I'm far too left brain, crazy, yeah, analytical same. German, but I'm trying. That It's that thing that allows us to put some of those arguments to rest, so to speak. Still have them. I mean, it, those right. are, those are, these are interesting and even pleasurable things to think about, but not to kid ourselves as to what we're actually apprehending or not apprehending. And, and I, and I do think that this is, I mean, this is part of the modern world we live in and it's been like this for a few hundred years, but recovering the whole body, the whole being kind of approach to what it means to be human. And, you know, you know, the questions we have that we will go to our grave, not having answers to one of those questions is who am I? Mm -hmm. What makes me tick? People don't know themselves. I'm constantly amazed of how poorly, I actually know myself. And I have these moments of clarity. And they're not negative moments. They're just insights. And again, one of the things about a contemplative approach to Christianity is that you do sort of, you you become a little bit introspective. And that's a good thing. That's not um, self-help. That's not, uh, you know, focusing on yourself instead of on the Lord. You know, one thing, you know, John Calvin is famous for having said in in the opening of his Institutes of the Christian religion, which every Calvinist reads. But you know, he says at the beginning that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are two sides of the same coin. You can't know yourself without knowing God, and you can't know God without knowing yourself. Isn't that an amazing thought? I love that. You know, and that's why you have to know yourself. That's why that's why a prayer that is basically silence and learning to be silent and to learn to understand you know, the spirit within you and who you are and just letting that sort of come out is, again, that's the kind of thing like, why wasn't I ever exposed to that when I was young? What is going on here? Well, what's going on is that we're part of a Protestant, conservative, Western model of Christianity that doesn't value that, you know, and it values other things and you can't value everything equally. But I think that what we're looking for now in the future is probably more of a contemplative model. And, you know, Carl Rahner, the Roman Catholic theologian, he was there around Vatican too, but he said something and I came across this somewhere and I, I've yet to find it again, but he said, the the future Christian man will be mystic or none at all. Yeah. I've that's seen that that's too. deep stuff, you know, and I, and I read that when I was going through some stuff years ago on my own and just, sensing God's presence in the wind, 
literally, you know, God, spirit means wind in the Hebrew, just uh, these things all come together. And, you know, what if that's part of what it means for God to be present in the world around us? And that's something you just feel and experience. It's not something you analyze and prove. Maybe yeah, that's I've, the future of all this stuff. At least I hope it is. Yeah, it might be. I, I've been chatting with Tony Jones about this topic. He was on the show and, and we've also been texting. We're going to talk about it in the future as well on the on the show. But I'm wondering if mysticism can be a sort of a bridge between a pure, rational, science-driven approach to the world and a kind of folk religion, miracles, pray for the healing, you know, God will just do things just like that in kind of a way that, I don't know, is not borne out by most people's experience unless they are sort of tricking themselves into that, into thinking that that's what happened. That mysticism is a kind of, it's transcendent, but it's not necessarily miraculous. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts on that idea. Nothing developed, but I like the way you're putting it. It's, I mean, a, a, an embrace of the mystical means that God is transcendent and we don't necessarily, what our perceptions tell us may not be what God is or what God is like. And so we can attribute to God certain things that look like miracles or we want them to be, but they're really not. But maybe God's active anyway. <laughs> you know, in in a non-miraculous sense, maybe God's presence is just, maybe panentheism is correct. God is in everything. The Spirit of God literally animates everything, every molecule, right? So, yeah, I think you can have in mysticism sort of that in-between synthesis of not being stuck in the the, the mistake, I think, the, 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 the deception that all of reality is exhausted potentially by our rational faculties. Much of it can be, but not all. By definition, God can't. If God can, then God isn't God. On the other hand, every moment is God doing something particular down here. And resting in the, 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 that in-between space might help us deal with things like uh, tragedy and suffering and where, you know, where's your miracle now? Or see, God doesn't exist. Maybe there is a different path forward to trying to understand all that. And, you know, what I just said, people have been saying for like ever. <laughs> I'm not saying anything new. I'm just figuring it out in my own little sure. Western context. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, there also is like a, a an exodus of people away from the church in the West. So there's some interesting stuff to think about of what might yeah. come next. Is there any aspect of the kind of certainty that you were peddled? when you were younger, that you are grateful for today? Hmm. Or is it pretty much all an unnecessary add-on to what could have been a more vibrant faith? I guess asking me that question now without thinking about it in, in any great depth, I'd probably be more in the latter camp than in the former. But it's not a bitterness that I say that with. It's more, maybe it's being given the structures of certainty has helped me see that they don't work, hmm. which is the gift. That's the positive thing. And it's not, oh, man, they really screwed me over with all this. It's just like, yeah, I get it. I understand why human beings do this, but there's got to be a better way forward. You know, so so you don't see that. You, you don't have the move toward reorientation without having an orientation that has to give way to disorientation. And that's all. That's why it's all good. And that's what you know. Richard Rohr says, "Don't belittle the previous stages." So I hate talking about stages. You know what I mean? Don't belittle yeah. those because that's part of what you are. That's part of what made you who you are. And that's why I want to be sort of. No, there's nothing I'm thankful for particularly, but the experience itself is my experience, and it's who I am, and that's all there is to it. And I'm and I'm. You know, I, I accept that warmly and I can see probably, you know, not not to ramble here, but maybe this isn't really certainty. But one thing, you know, my tradition really took seriously is reading the Bible. And I'm glad for that. <laughs> I'm glad for that. And, I, you know, I, there are other church um, denominations that don't really value Bible reading. But, you know, I did that a lot enough to want to go study it in seminary and then graduate school. So so that's a positive thing. But that's not that didn't give me certainty. You know what I mean? It's just, but it, but it still, it gives me um, a context within which to have Christian conversations and Christian thoughts with other people. Here's my last question for you. 
and it's back to the Bible. So thanks for bringing that up. I remember reading the Gospels in college. And let's say I was reading the Gospel of Luke, and I'm reading the Sermon on the Plain or something. And I come to some part where, and I'm, I'm not doing this verbatim, but, you know, Jesus says something very harsh about money or about, I don't know, something about judgment and whatever. What I remember feeling was not something like, huh, I wonder how this could challenge me. What Mm. I remember feeling was panic because it was like, oh, shit, if I'm not getting this right and I know how all this other stuff connects, then I what I need right now, then I would like call my, uh, you know, my Canvas Crusade Bible study leader or one of the bigger leaders or whatever, Mm. somebody who could help me remove the cognitive dissonance, the anxiety I was feeling mm-hmm. um, about not knowing where this fits and if I am in transgression of it in some uh, right. eternally meaningful way, right? right? So I see that as being related to a need for a kind of certainty. And mm-hmm. some of that was taught to me, but a lot of it is my personality type and being that kind of intellectual systems kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. How does one come back to the text without that certainty fueled anxiety such that you can hold these tough verses. You go, okay, well, I'm going to put some brackets around that and say, I don't know what to do with it, but look at this other stuff. Cause, cause isn't that just picking and choosing Pete? Like mm-hmm. I have so many of these voices. I'm having a hard time reapproaching the Bible. Let's put it that sure. way in yeah. this phase of my faith life. Of I feel like I learned a lot of bad habits and a lot of those were internal and some were external. I don't. Do you yeah. have some advice for people as they try and reapproach <laughs> the text in that I way? Sure this is probably like a very basic question for, for you, but kind of whatever. Right. Yeah, for a friend. Um, yeah, I do think it takes time because I think what the important place to get to and processing that for ourselves personally is not simply noticing, oh, here's a tough passage. What do I do with this passage? It's those passages raise the much larger and deeper question, what is the Bible? And that's something that I think has to be processed for people sometimes over a very long period of time. And then when you say, how do you then come back to the Bible? Well, the Bible you come back to is a different Bible. So the thing is that it's it's not like circling back to the text. It's you're journeying forward to a different conception of what the text even is. And it's not there to not trouble you. It's not there for us to sort of get the quick answer to make sure God's not mad at us. It's maybe there for something else entirely. And, I, and you know, I don't know, I, I can't really articulate what is that other thing entirely. I do take a stab at it and how the Bible actually works, which is it's leading us on a path where we accept the sacred responsibility of tying our own existence with this Christian tradition which has an ancient textual anchor. That's our job. That's called theology, quite frankly. That's really what we're doing. Our own experience and conversation with Christian tradition, and I'm going to throw Jewish tradition in there as well, because so much of the Bible is Jewish, how we um, navigate that long journey that we see ourselves as a part of that. And part of that journey has always been asking questions and being willing to even debate our tradition, which is very much a part of the Jewish tradition and very much a part of the Bible, right? So, so, but the thing is, it's, it's, I guess it's highlighting that stuff more than the Bible is a systematic, consistent font of clear theological propositions that you must hold on to. And that's why the Bible series give you prop, uh, propositions which doesn't explain why the Gospels contradict or we have two stories of Israel and all that kind of stuff, right? right? So, you know, I the like Bible's to, like screaming at us saying, don't do that to me. It doesn't work. I think it's helpful to think about like the Israelites in the temple, like chanting the Psalms, mm-hmm. you know, or like around a campfire retelling the story of the patriarchs or Ecclesi- book of Ecclesiastes or something. Like that's a – that's closer to what the text was written for at the time and how it was used then sort of how we do it now in our, now that everyone's literate and, you know, as you said, these kind of intellectually formed sub-traditions within Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, Pete, thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, in the notes, I'll have a link to your website, which, of course, has all your books and the podcast and all that Yay. stuff. And, awesome. uh, of course, uh, many people already listen to the Bible for Normal People, but if you don't, you should be listening to that, um, especially if you need more Bible content in your life, because I don't really provide very much of that on this show. <laughs> uh, I, uh, we all perform that our function here, Dan. That's we all it. have our functions. All right, man. Thanks so much. <laughs> As you probably know, you can support this show through the Patreon campaign, which gives you access to at least two exclusive episodes per month on a patron-only feed, and the Facebook group, which is available only to patrons. That is patreon.com slash dancoke. The link to that is in the show notes. There's also a sliding scale. If you can't afford that right now, please email me. Uh, and you can email me with anything else at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Josh Gilbert is my editor. He is available for more podcasting work. So hit him up. His emails in the show show notes as well. And my own uh, Instagram and Twitter handles are in there if you'd like to follow me. And for those who could use some more resources for their own faith deconstruction, reconstruction journey, especially if you're early on, you might check out SoYou'reDeconstructing.com. That is also in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week.